You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is on our election tour, and we traveled down to Kaohsiung, where I cast my vote in Taiwan's 2024 presidential election. Voting booths opened at 8 a.m. on January 13th, and we spoke with Sean Tzu midday on election day. He was also in Kaohsiung to cast his vote. Sean shared some of his observations, and we talked about the alarming text message alert that many in Taiwan received on January 9th. I remember reading the text about a missile flyover on my phone just as Kaju and I arrived in Kaohsiung on the high-speed rail. Sean is co-producer of Taiwan Report and known for jump-starting Keep Taiwan Free. He is also a frequent guest on ICRT. So how did you feel about the um, voting today? Because you're also in Kaohsiung to, to cast your vote, right? So um, today I, I was lucky to come to Kaohsiung. And uh, because a few days ago somebody had canceled their ticket, so I checked the app and then I, I, I came down. And usually it feels like it's a lot more packed than it was this time. Not only that, just out, just at the high-speed rail station coming down south, and uh, actually at the voting booth that I usually go to, uh, mine is at Wei Wuying, mm-hmm. and that's right next to the famous huge opera house. Yes, we just visited it yesterday. We got a tour from the architect. That's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I lo- uh, that's my neighborhood where they have all the graffiti and mm-hmm. all the county-sponsored uh, graffiti or city-sponsored <laughs> graffiti where, uh-huh. where they paint like, right. the floors and the, the walls and uh-huh. all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I noticed there wasn't nearly as many people as there was before, so I would have expected turn out to be higher. Now I am in Kaohsiung, which is relatively pan green, so I don't know if that means that there's just less turnout among the pan greens in general. I haven't had the chance to visit more of a pan blue district. Uh, I do believe that there are some pan blue districts in Kaohsiung. I haven't visited them yet, but uh, maybe I'll swing by later. However, yeah, that's that's my first thing that I noticed that in this election, it's way more muted. Like, even yesterday, uh, during election day, it just the day before elections, there's usually a lot more flyers, there's a lot more noise, there's a lot more activity. But this year, it just seems so muted, even though this is regarded by many as one of the most important elections in, in recent history. But especially if the outcome comes out one way or another. If the DPP wins again, it will be the first time in Taiwan's democratic history that uh, an outgoing uh, eight-year incumbent, which has been the case for basically every president thus far, um, you know, doesn't it doesn't switch parties. Yeah, that's you know, true. It, Good point. You know, so well, that that I think is going to be fascinating because the the, the the results will be will the KMT it generally if the KMT loses, especially such an important election that they deem out they'll win. If that happens, then there's going to be infighting, mm-hmm. uh, especially because um, there's the pan blue issues about trust the Rohoyo Yi, uh, the the necessity for him to choose uh, Jaw as his. Uh, I'm skipping between English and Chinese here. Yeah, sorry, yeah, no, we know that. Versus the Mandarin pronunciation. Jaw uh, versus, uh, you know, his uh, necessity to be a vice presidential candidate is to really rally together the pan blue votes. And then there's the other factor, which was. Um, uh, 
uh, Kohenza, which he could have just simply, um, you know, said that rally, tried to rally at least his supporters to vote for one way or another. But I didn't think he would do that because he would have to keep, you know, uh, his party. Uh, and if he did that, that would sacrifice his own party. So he took away some of the youth votes. Uh, from the DPP, or quite yeah. a bit of it for a while. Yeah. And uh, I don't, although uh, I have seen some changes. Have I seen that many young people come out this time? Not really. There were some younger people, like maybe in their uh, late 20s or early 30s, but they're not Gen Zers. So it makes me wonder why this is the case so far that I've witnessed myself. And I think maybe ever since uh, the botched plan to uh, have the GPP coordinate with the NPP has resulted in lower turnout. Indeed, I've seen in forums and other places a huge drop in enthusiasm uh, for the TPP, even among its own voters. And even among youth, I do, you know, interact with a lot of younger voters a lot. Okay. And in the past couple of weeks, I've noticed this huge drop in uh, enthusiasm as oh. well. Um, so all these things have happened. Uh, you know, uh, just before the elections and then or after uh, the ban on polling. Yeah. So, you know, it's really up in the air. Anything can really happen. And that's kind of what makes Taiwan politics so exciting. Yeah, I just read Courtney's piece and he said that Ko's YouTube channel just surpassed a million. But then also the youth vote is a very small percentage of the eligible voting population in Taiwan, too. So you can't put too much weight on that either, right? Well, I mean, if it's on YouTube streams, the thing is, it could be bolstered. I do know that currently China's attitude is not necessarily anti-Ko, but anybody but DPP. So we don't know who the watchers really are yeah, and where they're point. from. Yeah, ironically, China has successfully used YouTube to pay for its own propagandists mm -hmm. in the past mm -hmm. by using bots to show up in large numbers, yeah. and therefore YouTube itself is the one that pays out for these YouTubers, <laughs> you know, a platform that's been in China. So I don't think it's really reliable to trust uh, how many viewers there are. Uh, to be honest, it's not too hard to pay to get views, mm, uh, and it's it's not too hard to have live viewers as well. Mm. Um, it's not a big cost, mm. so we don't know, you know, what's real or not when it comes to the internet. Uh, there was a lot of discussions even yesterday, uh, especially there was a huge turnout for the DPP in around Kargalan yeah. uh, in Taipei, yes. and one of the main things is that you know there were people on the internet saying well you have to count the internet users how many people are watching online but you know the votes have to be not through through the internet the yes. votes have to be by in person, person. yeah and given that i do not see much of a turnout could be indicative of several things uh, it is possible that maybe Kaohsiung isn't voting that much. It's possible that, I mean, I'm speculating here. It could be, we'll find out later in just a couple hours. But uh, it's also possible that maybe more of the same means less enthusiasm. Yes. So th th this could be a danger for the GPP because, yes. uh, you know, uh, turnout and enthusiasm is extremely important. Right. And I do know that the KMT has tried their best to drum up support. But to be fair with people like Mayin Joe saying things like, 
Ball, what he did, which was like, uh, you know, Taiwan should essentially basically give up their sovereignty down the line, that it's hopeless, um, may have put a huge damper onto the KMT as well. This whole entire thing is rather interesting because just when you thought the KMT might have had a great advantage, a great opportunity to, to pounce, um, it didn't quite happen. But again, we won't know until a few hours when those votes are tallied, uh, starting from 4 p.m. today. And then, uh, and then uh, when they start uh, counting them, we'll know in a couple hours uh, what it's like uh, closer to midnight or in the early hours. Yeah. So, and rather exciting times. And what did you think about the alert that people got on their phones a couple days ago about the so-called missile slash satellite? Okay, so I have several views on that one. The first one is, I, I understand that it was launched from uh, a missile, uh, launch a uh, rocket platform. Okay, actually, let's step back for a minute. Uh, first, well, the most important thing to realize is that China's space program is under the auspices of their military. It is not like NASA or ESA, mm -hmm. the right. European Space Agency, or neither Japan's. This is actually under their military. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that a lot of their rockets are actually the same, many of them use the same exact platform as, uh, you know, their Dongfeng missiles, right? Mm -hmm. So, their Dongfeng missiles, the DF missiles are basically, for the most part, the same, and they use they use those ICBMs as the platform for uh, their long march uh, rockets. So in many instances, including this one, the only difference really is not really even a pointy head or not. Uh, they use the same exact variants with the conical heads, um, especially when launching satellites. And a lot of their ICBMs do not have the pointy heads. They literally have the same conical heads, essentially. The main difference is a paint job on the outside and, of course, whether the payload is a warhead or a uh, you know, a, a satellite. Now, I've described this as sort of like a kinder egg, where you don't know what's in there. Is it a bomb or a toy? You know, you can't, can't quite know. Which is, except where it's launched from, and sometimes, uh, for the most part, they'll announce some of their launches, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where it gets tricky. They sometimes announce trajectory, which they did. This time, sometimes they don't. But this, or, or with very little notice, this time with their trajectory, though, there is a major problem. They changed the trajectory last minute, so the, the Taiwanese government only had about 90 seconds to respond. Oh. Now, in a high-stakes, nervous environment like that, and you're watching it deviate from its path, and it didn't even go into just, you know, Taiwan airspace, like fly over like the southern EEZ of Taiwan. It actually flew over uh, Tainan and Taidong. Mm -hmm. Granted, it was very much in space by the time that happened. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're nervous. So they changed their message in Chinese, but they didn't change their message in English. Yeah. So I, I don't blame them so much for not differentiating so much between missile and rocket when it's the same platform. Mm. However, yes, somebody who is very uh, nuanced or very familiar with English will feel that missiles or rockets are different. But I argue against that because, you know, when someone says Hamas rockets were launched against Israel, killing how many people? Or when they say a V-2 rocket in World War II, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's for space either. So linguistically, I don't see that much of a difference. Uh, the trajectory change unannounced was a major problem that should not have happened. Uh, China should have been more clear on that one. And uh, the other final thing is that uh, people, some people have blamed bilingual 2030. 
Oh. <laughs> I, I do think that people should read the white paper of Bilingual 2030. For the most part, Bilingual 2030 is aimed at youth. Mm -hmm. This is because uh, it is not aimed to change every last spelling error mistake or grammatical mistake there is, you know, in Taiwan. And it is not there to teach your grandmother, uh, you know, <laughs> or retiree how to, you know, speak English. That's not really what Bilingual 2030 is. For the most part, Bilingual 2030 aims to have about 50% of 12th graders uh, achieve a B2 level on the CEFR. Mm. So their English proficiency should be pretty good, you know, near college level uh, by the time they hit the 12th grade. This is because it's easier to handle when it comes to students. It's also designed to give excelling students who might need to use English the opportunities there to do that. For example, study abroad programs, competitions, scholarships, what have you. So on that front, it's actually in close to target. Uh, there has been some delays, but in 2021, it basically almost achieved uh, what it was supposed to in 2024. Back in 2021, uh, you know, in these kind of metrics, especially in the special municipalities and the big cities, you know, we're talking about like Taipei, uh, Kaohsiung, etc. You know, we're not talking about like mountaintop places where, um, you know, it's very hard to combine English teacher. So in this aspect, actually, uh, and what Bilingual 2030 is about to do, it's actually quite on target. It is not meant, of course, to help you at your bank if you have issues. Although I do think uh, Bilingual 2030, when you have those issues as an expat, then maybe that's something that, you know, means that Bilingual 2030 should be expanded. Perhaps they can give awards or offer tax incentives and what have you uh, for businesses that make it easier, especially critical ones uh, or critical departments like starting your own business. Yes, English in those areas should be improved as well. And they have to hire people to manage those uh, uh, sections. And it's not very easy because it is not easy to find a, uh, a an expat willing to work in the environs of uh, Taiwan's governmental yeah. departments always, mm -hmm. especially when it's uh, client-facing, mm -hmm. because they're not doing that every day. However, mm -hmm. I think that's a chicken and egg problem. And again, that has nothing to do with Bilingual 2030. They do have the white paper online. Uh, I think the NDC, the National Development Council, uh, has it, and it's actually both in English and Chinese, oh, right? Okay. And the English is actually well-written. So I encourage people to read the entire white paper of um, Bilingual 2030, as well as its 2021 updates to kind of understand what it's really about. So yes, the missile and rocket colloquial translation when you only have about 96 seconds to deal with this issue isn't really that important. Then one final thing, surely after Pelosi's visit, uh, you know, there was a, a long time ago, that feels like a long time ago. Yeah. China did launch some missiles uh, around Taiwan, not necessarily over, I think, except for one or two. Right. And they did not report those, and then there was fury on the island. Mm. And then, or I don't like to say island, the islands of Taiwan. Right, right. And the second thing is that, so either they do report it or they don't, but given that there was a surprise trajectory change, mm -hmm. and having it fly over Tainan and Taitung mm -hmm. warrants some sort of reporting, you know. And yes, it is unfortunate. That's what triggered the reporting, the change in tra trajectory, probably? That is the main thing, and mm -hmm. they only had about 90 seconds uh -huh. to do it. I see. Now, um, granted, I don't think the military is that 
they, they, they probably do not have somebody with a teaching degree in English, yeah, yeah. you know, wearing right. camo, sitting right. in, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like a, a, a like a information command center there just to translate these things. Yeah. This is not one of them right. what they're really for. Right, right. Uh, I was there when this happened. I was watching everybody mm -hmm. uh, on the streets. Yeah, yes. I happened to be on the road when mm -hmm. all of our phones started, most of our phones, yes. all of our phones yes. started making noise. Mm -hmm. And most people treated it like, you know, okay, sure, I understand, you know. Like, nobody seemed to, like, really stop in their tracks. I saw people looking at their phones. I yeah. was on my scooter. I have an electric scooter. And I happened to be waiting at a light. And then my phone went off, and then so did everyone else around me. They kind of looked in sort of short, you know. Um, you know, expats who saw the missile part might have been really worried. Uh, that was the part that wasn't really translated from yeah. their stock messaging. Yeah. But again, they only had 90-something seconds to do it in right. consideration. I think they got house of it right. Hey, Sean, I'm trying to understand the nuance of this 90 second trajectory change. So is that a very slow response time? I mean, is that, are you insinuating also that Taiwan would have to respond much quicker than 90 seconds if there is a trajectory change in order to secure uh, some type of, not retaliatory, defense. some type of defense mechanism if the real thing were to happen? Uh, okay, so hypothetically, what China would do is, for example, if they might launch a missile or rocket, uh, instead of a satellite, they'd replace it with a warhead to do a surprise attack over Taiwan, right? And then Taiwan would have to decide what to do. This is why I think it's very provocative, right? People, some people argue, oh, China's not really, some people argue that China isn't reckless. Mm -hmm. uh, they wouldn't trigger a war by doing such a surprise attack, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But then let's step back for a minute and see what was involved here. They made a trajectory change, they made no announcement of it, and they probably had an idea that they were going to have this trajectory change since the start. They have to calculate these things, right? It wasn't just on a whim, they press a button, make a change. Um, they had to plan it out. So at the very least, they probably had an idea of it 30 minutes, an hour ahead of time. Mm. There was all that time in order to post or, or, or you know, notify somebody or notify the world that they were going to make a trajectory change. They opted not to. Seems pretty reckless to be. It, it feels reckless to me yeah. as well because you know it's the same kind of missile and rocket platform. Uh, well, to be fair, the Long March 5, from my understanding, will be a completely different system. However, in this case, they're the similar platform. So, yeah, I mean, nobody, when authoritarians are surrounded by yes men, um, I generally think that China is basically a rich North Korea sometimes. Mm. Because you don't know what they're going to mm. do. Just watching them do horrible things like when they kidnap the two Michaels from Canada mm -hmm. just on a whim. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it, unfortunately, the government has been known to just do things, consequences be damned, mm -hmm. and, and they'll find out later. Mm -hmm. So with that kind of understanding, uh, I don't think the Taiwan government reacted slowly. I think they did what they could with the time. And of course, the first reaction is, should we set up our military? Should we do all this? And then, of course, you have to inform the civilians. Now, they watched as, uh, what do you call it, debris and what have you dropped out from their launch uh, over China. So they probably had seconds to react to decide whether to send out a message about possible other debris falling from the sky later, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and again, that's also another reckless thing, which is why would you 
change your launch trajectory to fly over Taiwan. It could have easily been avoided. Uh, some years ago, China also flew a, a move of the barge right outside the East uh, Seas or East China Seas or what have you, that area near Korea. And they flew it and they didn't announce their launches earlier, but this time they did. And it flew over Taiwan. Hmm. Now, was it in space by the time it flew over Taiwan? Yes. But it's still reckless because if something would happen, there's still a probability that you might hit a population center or some debris might fall over population centers. And it's not like this is China's first rodeo in which something like that has happened. It's happened numerous times. To be fair, the more recent launch, long march rockets have been re re really reliable. Um, rockets nowadays generally, uh, you know, once they have a record, they seem to be somewhat reliable. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, they're still playing games. This is still somewhat mm -hmm. risky. Mm -hmm. And especially for, you know, the fact that they know that Taiwan is wary of China. So mm -hmm. doing these kind of things, I do think is not only reckless, brings the potential for a mishap or misunderstanding mm -hmm. that could lead to war, but it could also seriously harm civilians. There's mm -hmm. just no need sure. to do this. Sean, do you worry about the complacency of the people in Taiwan? Because uh, you see the way that they seem to have a whatever attitude. So common, these ADIZ incursions and these missile launches that people don't even seem to worry about it. And that could really be a danger if the real thing were to happen and they were red alert and people would not respond quickly enough. Don't you worry about that? I think that there's nothing that can really be done, realistically speaking. Um, mm -hmm. If it was a nuclear warhead, there's really not much time for anybody to really do much, to be honest. Ducking cover, as we all know, uh, was a sort of uh, move where they taught children to sort of find cover by ducking under tables and stuff. But if there were a real nuclear attack, that would do very little. Yeah. So the thing is, do I really believe that it makes that much of a difference? Not really, because there's another reason. Um, for China to pull off a successful invasion of Taiwan, it would require a lot of troops. By some estimates, mm, well over right. half of its military. Right. And something like that isn't something that you can just pull off um, in a day or on a whim. Uh -huh. So, yes, you could send one over just to, you know, send a message, yeah. per se. Right. But uh, I don't think it would be taken well in Taiwan, but I don't think the CCP understands that because Xi Jinping surrounds himself with Yasmin. Yeah. The evidence I have for that is the, the reaction that the, they deal with by how they talk about Taiwan or talk to Taiwan or tell us who we should vote for is in such a brutish way that it yeah. doesn't work. It's going to backfire. <laughs> and it always backfires. And it has. It's, this isn't the first election where it's backfired upon them. They've been doing this since 1996 mm -hmm. when they fired yeah, missiles yeah. off the coast right. of Taiwan, yeah. you know, to warn against people voting for someone like, you know, to, basically yeah. due to Lee Dong-Hui's visit yes. to the U.S. Yes. So, Things like this just suggests that they still have no real clue of how Taiwanese people think. Right, right, right. So, anyway, uh, it would take months for them to gather all these troops, and by then time, the mentality will change. Uh, there's no way for them to actually change anything. There is a possibility they might lob a missile over or two, but to be fair, when you only have seconds remaining, it wouldn't, I believe, make that much of a difference. Mm. You know, if anything, they might take advantage of that. If every time China launched, made a launch and everyone had to buckle up and quarantine themselves for a few, for, for like an hour, 30 minutes, 
we'd be doing that three, four times a week. True. Every time a fighter, you know, uh, across the median line, then we'd have to do it every day. It would mm. put Taiwan into a standstill. So yeah, yeah. I think Taiwanese people are just doing what they can to yeah. what they can right. within their means because they can't change anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, all they can do is vote, hope that their leaders do right by them. And uh, in this case, the presidential election, uh, one of the most important aspects is getting a leader that can build international relations for Taiwan to a degree that Taiwan can have stronger allies or build stronger deterrence against uh, uh, since China think twice against invasion. Right. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Sean. That was really, really great. Fantastic analysis, Sean. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Alright. Take care. We've been speaking to Sean Su in Kaohsiung on Election Day, January 13th, 2024. So what are you waiting for? To support the Talking Taiwan election tour, visit TalkingTaiwan.com forward slash support or share this episode with a friend. Now it's time for you to show us some love. Rate us on Spotify or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.